presenting John Gabriel, the undisputed king of stuff. What is up, podcasts? This is John Gabriel, your favorite podcast host on your favorite podcast, The King of Stuff. Hopefully my voice is not stuffy or anything. Uh, I actually took last week's show off because uh, I was going to record on Wednesday, I think, and well, I nearly died. I got a cold, and as you know, for uh, a gentleman such as myself, no matter how strong and mighty I am, a cold is the worst thing that can happen, and uh, yeah, it kind of then everybody else in my family got sick, and it's all my fault, but anyway, I'm feeling a bit better, but still a little bit off, so uh, hopefully that doesn't come through in the dulcet tones to which you've grown accustomed. Well, the past two shows have been me on a solo rant, and I wanted to get a guest back on, so I got Jay Cost. He wrote a book, I believe it was out last year, about James Madison. It's called James Madison, America's First Politician, and uh, here's a president that a lot of people don't know a lot about. I don't, to be honest. I know he was around in 1812. What else? James Madison. He was married to Dolly Madison. I know that. His birthplace is Madison Square Garden. I'm just assuming that one. Um, but yeah, I didn't know a whole bunch about him. So I was like, hey, why don't we talk about his book? Um, very highly reviewed. So everybody rush out and get it. A little bit about Jay. He's the Gerald R. Ford non-resident senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. There he focuses on elections, politics, and political opinion. He's a columnist for National Review and the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. Um, he's written a bunch of books. I, I didn't realize how many. Um, his most recent ones, other than the James Madison title, was The Price of Greatness, James Madison, Alexander Hamilton, and the Creation of the American Oligarchy, and a Republic No More, Big Government, and the Rise of Political Corruption. Before that, too, he worked for Real Clear Politics. I think that's where I first became familiar with him. He has a Ph.D. and an M.A. in political science from the University of Chicago and a B.A. in government and history from the University of Virginia. Take it away, Jay and John. Mr. Jay Cost, we followed each other uh, for, I don't know, 50 years on Twitter, I think. And I was like, yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, back on CompuServe, I think we started. <laughs> right. The heck their version of Twitter would have been. But uh, you have a book, James Madison, America's First Politician. Now, politician is a very dirty word, as we all know. Um, but I thought it was a very interesting concept. You saying, look, in a republic, which America was, well, hopefully still is. Um, right. We didn't really have politicians, you know, they were dealing with lofty ideas, but it's like, okay, how do you actually get stuff done? So what drew you to James Madison as a uh, good, um, good idea to focus on him for a bio? Yeah, that's a great question. And th hey, thanks for having me. Um, I, I guess I I've been interested in Madison for a long time, I think for a number of reasons. I think probably the biggest maybe is that he's he's probably among the most significant founders. He's the least flashiest yeah. uh, or maybe just the least flashy. Right. He doesn't have, um, you know, George Washington has the defeat of Cornwallis at Yorktown. Thomas Jefferson has the Declaration of Independence. John Adams has the Sons of Liberty. You know, even ha Hamilton dies in a famous way. Madison doesn't have anything like that. And, and so there is something about Madison's life that seems not heroic to the modern memory. And I, I think it might be why we don't really have any major statues honoring Madison anywhere. Um, but the more that I, over the years, the more that I'd studied the American founding, the more I came to realize that Madison's ideas, probably more than anybody else's, um, maybe I don't I'm not sure if he carried the day in important events. I'm not not really sure it's right to say that. I think rather it might be best to say that of all of the founders, Madison's ideas of Republican government, small r Republican government, were most in sync with the Constitution that best reflected the vision that the Constitution um, embodied. And so Madison is somebody who's worth really digging into in a in a in a way that goes beyond the usual, like, well, let's look at the Federalist Papers and see what he says there. Right. Um, so I've for a while now, I've really been sort of thinking about 
Madison, not just in his his writings under the pseudonym Publius in the Federalist Papers, but looking at his political career as ways to see, okay, well, what did he really think about politics? Because you figure that his career would embody those those theories as well. Yeah, well, and he's a fascinating subject because we we talk about the founding generation and we talk about, of course, Revolutionary War and then the Constitution coming up. But um, he just seems like a guy who got into the nuts and bolts. It's like, okay, how do we make this crap work? Um, So it's not just a bunch of uh, theory uh, because all these guys were reading the greats, the classics, reading Plato, reading Xenophon, you know, comparing how various republics worked or democracies worked throughout human history. And uh, but a lot of times, uh, to use a modern example, you just got to get your neighborhood's road paved. And, and it's like, how do we actually do these kind of nuts and bolts thing to keep a country running that uh, don't really uh, bring up a lot of lofty ideals? But here's a structure. Let's make sure it works. Yeah, I think a good example of that actually is that Madison was, as far as I know, um, the first national politician to propose what we today call a log roll. Um, the context was this was back before the Constitution was enacted in the Continental Congress. They were trying the Continental Congress was trying to get the 13 states to agree um, to create each individually created a tax on imported goods with the money going directly to Congress and the states. A lot of the states didn't want to do this. It was politically unpopular. So it, Madison was the one who had the idea to the word that he used was bait to give things to states that they wanted. So, for instance, Maryland would get a good deal on what was going to happen to the Western lands. Virginia would get I think they got some reductions in their war debts, things like that. It was it was a log roll, like what we today call a log roll. So it's a good example of Madison. In Madison, you see a really good combination of highfalutin, you know, philosophy, right? He could intellectualize with the best of them, but he was also just really good at politics. And in one of the things I've really enjoyed in my research of Madison is watching him just beat the crap out of Pat- Patrick Henry politically. <laughs> um, and, you know, because everybody, when we think about Patrick Henry, we think of this lofty, you know, give me liberty or give me death. But Madison and Henry were from pretty early on political enemies. And Jefferson and Madison hated Patrick Henry. <laughs> um, and it's just really interesting to see how Madison continually like outsmarted Patrick Henry basically from 1784 until Henry's death, which is really impressive because, you know, Henry was this larger than life guy, you know, even Jefferson who hated him recognized that he was probably the greatest orator of, of his generation. And Madison was this quiet, soft-spoken, he was five foot four. He weighed a hundred pounds soaking wet. Nobody, you know, no, you were never in danger of overestimating James Madison when you saw him. Everybody underestimated him. It was just remarkable to research these stories about Madison just outworking Patrick Henry and outsmarting him. It was just kind of cool. So I really I enjoyed that a lot. Yeah, that's a really fantastic to see. Now, his one big failure um, that everybody points to, of course, is the War of 1812, um, where he got to. D.C., all the buildings burned, of course, as we know. Uh, We ended up uh, kind of saving it. Um, Did he ever go back and reflect on that and say, wow, I pushed this a little too far? Because I've been it's something that when I heard about it in grade school, I was like, well, the Brits, they were impressing our sailors. And darn it, we're not going to take this nonsense. Um, But, yeah, I I guess uh, as a country, we're very fortunate that. England was slightly distracted with uh, some Napoleon guy or something. <laughs> yeah, they were. Yeah. Right. And, you know, so they were just kind of like with one hand trying to take care of these uppity Americans. Right. <laughs> just like, please stop. We got enough on our plate right now, you idiots. Um, but uh, then, of course, you had the Battle of New Orleans, which is the most famous of uh, that. Yes. But it, but it's something is it something that he was like, OK, we went a bit too far on this one or I didn't play this right because he's obviously an insanely smart guy and not any kind of a radical. 
No, I, I don't think so. I mean, I, I the the War of 1812 was an interesting it took a really interesting course, which was the invasion that the Americans plan, which is really funny in retrospect, because everybody everybody was in favor of the war thought it would be easily won. Jefferson wrote a letter. Jefferson's retired at this point, wrote a letter saying invading. The plan was to invade Canada. Right. right. Uh, and Jefferson wrote a letter, said it would be a mere matter of marching is what he said. All we had to do was walk in and we'd take Canada. Um, and in 1812, there was this like three pronged planned assault to invade Canada. It was a complete disaster. 1813, they tried again to invade Canada. It was once again, it was a disaster. And then in 1814, they tried again and it was a disaster again. And this is usually why the war gets a bad reputation, because it was very clear um, that the country did not have the underlying capacity to wage war um, for a variety of reasons, one of which was too dependent on the militia. So an example of that is I think it was in the 1813 campaign. They were trying to get the militia to cross the Niagara River, the New York militia to cross the Niagara River. They heard the Indians war whoops and the New York militia were like, we're not going over there. So <laughs> the, the British ended up capturing like a thousand, the thousand Americans who went, who had actually crossed ended up getting captured. Right. So yeah. It was just really bad in that respect. But then what's interesting is that after the British, um, after Napoleon is defeated and he's he's dispatched um, to, uh, you know, he's in exile, not the permanent exile on St. Helena, right. but the, the hundred days of the restoration of the Bourbon monarchy. The British then turn their attention. They stop fighting with one hand behind their back. Mm-hmm. And their thinking is, well, you know what we're going to do is we're going to invade upstate New York. We'll capture a bunch of territory. And then in the subsequent peace negotiations, we'll have the leverage. That was their plan. So they begin executing that in 1814. Um, and the British fail spectacularly. So while the Americans looked like fools in 1812 and 1813, they they fought really brilliantly in 1814, the Battle of Plattsburgh. Lake Champlain, the American Navy on Lake Champlain just absolutely decimated the British Navy and it caused the British Army to run away. And, um, and then, at- Canada, by the way, but I would just like to see more battles on the Great Lakes. And yeah, Lake yes, Plain. that just sounds cool to me. But uh, yes, well, and, and then, of course, um, the Americans never got control of Lake Ontario, but they did have control over Lake Erie, thanks to Oliver Hazard Perry. Huh. Right. And Oliver has, and Perry has like, I think, one of the greatest like put down smackdown quotes of all time when he was reporting to i want to say the secretary of the navy he said we have met the enemy and they are ours what a right. great line that is just amazing right Very awesome. um, and that that battle the battle of lake erie what perry does is just it's insane like his his command ship is burning it's stinking so he gets out and he goes into the other boat and like he just turns the other boat and just like runs right through the british line and sinks the whole it's amazing so anyway <laughs> so they had that there was the victory at plattsburgh and then the victory um uh, at the battle of of baltimore at fort mchenry um and i say and i think the this is sort of the way I like to think about the War of 1812, at least the way the Americans thought of it at the time. Um, the way the the War of 1812, I would say it's something like this. Like, imagine you're the you're the worst team in football, right? Right now, the worst team in football is the Houston Texans. Okay, uh-huh. the, be- the best team in football is like the Philadelphia Eagles. So, the last game of the year, if the Houston Texans fight the Philadelphia Eagles to a tie, they're going to be pretty pleased with themselves, right? right? Because we're terrible, they're amazing, and we got a tie. Right. Mm -hmm. That's sort of what the Americans managed in the War of 1812. It's really encapsulated in the um, the national anthem, the Star Spangled Banner. Like if you listen to the lyrics of the Star Spangled Banner. The Star Spangled Banner is not about some great American military triumph. It's not like, you know, the victory at Iwo Jima or something like that. It's not even about the Battle of New Orleans. It's about 
you know, Francis Scott Key is on the deck of a British ship and all night long he watches the British just pound the crap out of Fort McHenry. And in the morning, it's not obliterated. And that's like the reason for success. Like that's what, that's what we celebrate in the Star Spangled Banner. Like we got beaten up all night, but we we didn't fall over, you know, like that's yeah. And there was this real vibe in the country when Madison retired that we had um, vindicated the national honor and the national character. But one of the the lasting, I think one of the, the war of 1812 is not a success, but I think one of the more important things, and I think it speaks well of Madison is that the war of 1812 ends in 1815. He's got about two years left in his presidency and he supports, he gets behind a whole series of reforms, one of which, and I think probably the most long lasting and the most significant was a reform of the military, particularly the quartermaster offices. And so, because they had had lots of problems with procurement and supplying troops. And this ends up paying huge dividends down the line because it's the Mexican-American War, they don't have those problems. And then later on in the Civil War, even though the government is generally completely not prepared to, to take that kind of wartime footing, we do have this relatively advanced and experienced back office of military personnel to get stuff to the soldiers. And a lot of that comes in the wake of the war of 1812. So that's, I would say like, yes, the war was not very well fought in the beginning, but the Americans, it it was most of the time the victor was whoever was playing defense. So the Americans won very well in 1814. And then more importantly, I think Madison learned a lot of really important lessons that paid off later. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And then, you know, followed the whole era of good feelings, however possibly misnamed that might have been because there was still a lot of knife fights going on. But um, yeah, just to kind of like, look, we're a nation. We're all together now. Uh, Let's get some things done. Um, And he really kind of helped form this because despite being America's first politician, it's a situation where um, he he really uh, was trying to kind of unify America in a lot of ways and say, look, let's just get together and get some stuff done because we're a new country and we need to we need to do some maintenance here. Yeah. And I think one of the underlying arguments of the book is that, you know, when I. Madison's vision of politics is very different than our vision of politics. You know, today our vision of politics is much closer to, you know, uh, in 1912 when Teddy Roosevelt was going to go form a third party after he had lost the Republican nomination against Taft. He gave this speech to his supporters. And he, you know, he famously says, We stand at Armageddon and we do battle for the Lord, trying to rally his supporters, right? And so a lot of times today, People take politics as a kind of holy war. And I think, you know, they also take it as a kind of religion is sort of how, but, you know, you look at the intensity that a lot of people throw into politics and it's sort of like, well, you're very clearly like, this is a lot of energy that you should probably like historically people have put into religion. And America is increasingly unchurched and that energy gets poured into politics. And I think, Madison's response would be, well, you know, religion is religion and politics is politics. These are two different things. And Madison's view of politics was not the kind of, you know, that kind of the battle of good versus evil. That's And if you read him in the Federalist Papers, he's pretty clear about that. His view of politics instead was that if it's a well-structured, well-organized political process – then politics can be the place where different views are heard, different perspectives are considered, and a compromise is discovered among the representatives of the people of the United States. That that's that's actually the function of politics. The function of politics is not I'm going to destroy you and I'm going to forcibly convert your children to liberalism, right? right? Which is sort of the attitude that they have nowadays, or vice versa. I'm going to destroy you and like Louis the Fourteenth against the Huguenots. You know, we're going to yeah, yeah. salt the fields with you. They will curse your name forever. Liberal 
liberals or conservatives or whatever. Madison's view was like, no, look, you know, we, you guys want this and we want that, but there's this thing that we can kind of agree on. So let's do that thing and we'll kick the other stuff down the road, do another election and we'll see what the people say in response. And, and, you know, he was, it was actually a pretty successful model in a lot of respects. The era of good feelings is a misnomer, but at the same time though, you know, political opposition to the Republicans, Madison's political party really collapsed. Um, in the latter half of the 18 teens, because they had basically found common ground. And, you you know, that's sort of why. And this is why James Monroe runs uncontested for for the president in 1820 was because the Republicans, as they were known today in history, we call in history classes. They're they're called the Democratic Republicans, but that's not what they called themselves. They called themselves the Republicans. And, you know, pretty the reason Monroe ran uncontested was because the, the Republican Party had broadened its its horizons enough to absorb so much of the old Federalist Party that the distinctions kind of melted away. I mean, it didn't last forever. Nothing like that could possibly last forever. But there was nevertheless a spirit behind that and a vision of politics that is really distinct from ours. And I think much less toxic than ours, which is another reason why I really felt drawn to write more about Madison, because I think Madison offers a practical alternative to to a practical alternative to our politics today. Like Madison's vision of politics is not just some pie in the sky Marxist kind of vision. He actually did it. You know, actually is something that can be done. Yeah. And that's uh, kind of rare now, especially when you mention kind of, we need to salt the earth of our opposition. Sometimes I guess you see it a lot more in local politics uh, here in Arizona. We have Republican governor, Doug Ducey, who's um, the main criticisms from the right of him is more about his attitude. It's like, why aren't you angrier? And instead, right. No, I just, he smiles a lot. And every time he passes some huge thing like universal school choice, he brings on several Democrats and people are like, yeah, but you're not mad at them enough. Why do you want their support? It's like, look, I'm just trying to get stuff done. And I, I think uh, state um, officials and uh, especially local officials, look, they just got to get stuff done. And uh, there are problems that need to be solved. And if you can bring a couple of people from the opposing party on board, uh, that's a win for everybody because the next person won't just destroy it when you leave. Yeah, you know, it really is remarkable. Arizona under Ducey has been a model of successful Republican governance in many ways. Easily respects. the most conservative governor. I, I think he's more what he's actually accomplished is more conservative than DeSantis. And I love DeSantis. But yeah, yeah it really is when I've tried to analyze the critiques of him, especially from, you know, people on the. I, I guess I'd just say more MAGA right. It's not like right. a Trump-related thing, but uh, people are like, no, we're the staunch conservatives. We're the real conservatives. It's just like, man, but he's gotten everything you wanted done and then way more. <laughs> you know, It's like, who cares how he does it? Uh, he's just a Midwestern guy who's Midwest nice, and um, I ultimately am too since that's where my folks are from. Uh, my folks are from Michigan, and that's why I want a lot more great – Great Lakes war, you know, fighting going on there just because it'd be more interesting <laughs> when I go up there on vacation. Um, but it, it, it's just interesting. It's just like, look, if he can get all the same stuff done with a smile, go for it. If that works, I, I just want uh, good policies. That's all I'm looking for. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, the other thing, too, is that our system is and on on the federal level, but you know the state constitutions generally mimic the federal constitution, so it's similar. You know, our system does not work very well. You're not going to get a lot of stuff done if the margin is 51 percent to 49 percent. Yeah, you know, or, or like a good example of that would be, um, I like to use as an analog the Brexit vote. That would never happen in the United States of America. So a, a consequential policy decision of, of that, not just national significance for England, but continental significance for all of Europe. You know, they settled that in a plebiscite, which went, I think it was like 51 and a half to 48 and a half or something insanely close. Um, that's not how our system works. And, you know, the liberals 
progressives today, when they complain about, oh, our system is not a democracy, this is unfair. Well, it's not a democracy because you have to get, realistically speaking, to get something done, you need to get more than 51% of the of the vote, or you need to get more than half plus one of whatever you're dealing with. That's usually not enough. That's sort of how separation of powers and checks and balances ends up working out, is that narrow majorities are usually undermined. The majorities that enact lasting change are the majorities that are broader, that in other words, bring in your former opponents, that that's how lasting change is affected. Um, And I I don't know. I, I think it gets back to, you know, I think too many people on both the left and the right just see politics as a kind of religion now. Yeah. And I, and I and I think that too many people also just view it as part of me also thinks that we're this sort of a post materialist culture that is supremely comfortable, maybe too comfortable for our own good. And so politics, you know, because it used to be issues of politics were really issues of, I don't want to say life and death, but, you know, when people, when the country was much poorer and much less safe, political questions actually carried a real physical material implications. Right. But now, particularly with the, you know, the American middle class, I mean, you know, we go through hard times and we're probably going to have a recession next year, but you know, nobody's realistically speaking, nobody's going to go hungry in the way people used to go hungry, you know, or the unemployment. Yeah. We might get a, a spike in the unemployment rate, but we have unemployment insurance compensation and we have all these things that cushion us. We're very cushioned people in other words. And I, and I think that maybe paradoxically as a, a, what maybe one would have expected is that, you know, well, cushioning the citizenry will make them more capable of contemplating the public interest. But I think it has made us very trivial and very um, frivolous. And so we don't because our our lives are not at stake because of the political process. We sort of view it as a kind of game, I think, in right. many respects, um, and it, which is ironic because, you know, we have this kind of apocalyptic attitude like, oh, the other side gets in. That's I, I remember that happening a lot in 2016 because, you know, I, I opposed Donald Trump in 2016 and and then and then he got he gets the nomination. And people are like, well, you know, who's that guy? Michael Anton, the flight 93 election, you know, oh, the plane's going down. It's like if you guys really thought that the plane was going to crash why would you have elected why would you have nominated the guy who had the worst numbers against hillary clinton like if you really thought it was life versus death you would have not you would not have nominated him you would have picked the most electable guy and you would have chosen him you know it's like i just kind of i don't know it's just something about politics today seems very frivolous especially in the online the online world in the Twitter world. And you know, this from personal experience, it's just such a frivolousness to it. It's just so it's not just that it's dumb. It's that people get themselves like I, there's this thing where like in every day I, when I log on to Twitter, it's not like, I always expect people to be outraged, you know, mm-hmm. like and they're constantly out. They're constantly our political Twitter is constantly outraged and sort of just I find it really interesting to see like, oh, I wonder what stupid thing people are outraged about today. You know, it's like you know, it's and just the outrage it's- could be um, you'll have an extremely high level outrage because, say, Russia just invaded Ukraine and a week earlier it's because a basketball player made a political comment that wasn't properly critical of China. And the outrage level is identical right. every day. Right. It's identical. And right. they would figure out, okay, what is my pretext for exhibiting outrage today? And I don't yeah. know how people do it. Well, I think it speaks to the otherworldliness because it's all just images flashing on a screen for us. Like in practice, it's none, none of it. Like none of this stuff affects my real life. Like if I had just, Eight years ago, become a complete, total political hermit. Like I didn't, don't even know like who the president is or anything. None of like things could have gone in a completely different direction politically. I'd still basically be okay, you know. Now that's a consequence of my, you know, I live an upper middle class life and I'm reasonably comfortable and uh, you know I'm very, very blessed. Don't get me wrong, I'm very blessed. God is God has been very good to me. 
Um, but it, it also speaks to the fact that like, practically speaking, I don't have a lot of skin in the game, like my skin in the game or my ideas, you know, or my principles, it's like anytime this is, I've gotten to the point now, maybe it's just cause I'm middle age now, but anytime I hear people talking about their principles, like I, I, that feels like very golden calf stuff to me. Oh, like I just st- start rolling my eyes at that. Like, you know, Oh, your principles. Good for you. You have principles. Congratulations. Right. You know, like any 15 year old has principles. You know, it's, it's the first thing you get when you start paying attention to politics. Oh, I believe in this. Good for you. <laughs> well, what do you think looking at uh, kind of the craziness of our politics these days, do you have any perspective on what Madison would think of it? Would he just throw up his hands and see if it's still legal to grow tobacco or um, <laughs> would he have some sage advice for us? I mean, I th- I think his I, I, you know it's hard to say because he he just blows me away by how smart he is. I mean, like Psalm forty four now, and a lot of like Madison's best, most substantial writing happened in like seventeen eighty seven to eighty eight. All right, and he so he and he was born in seventeen fifty one. So he was doing his best work when he was almost a decade younger than I am now. Mm-hmm. And it's it. And I Isn't still don't think how young those guys were. I remember the yeah. first time it was only until, I don't know, four or five years ago. I finally read the Federalist Papers um, instead of reading people talking about the Federalist Papers. And I'm like, holy crap, these these people are like some of them in their 30s. And this is yeah. the most brilliant stuff I've ever read in my life. I know. Hamilton was like he was like just 30. Um, yeah. So Matt and, and so I, I always say, well, people ask me, like, what what would Madison say? I'm always I'm always hesitant because I he is on a high he, like I fully I think that if he if he did come back and considered things, probably what he would say would blow me away. And I'd probably be like, holy crap, I didn't think of that. <laughs> and that's so much smarter than I would think. But I will say that I, I will say that I have instead. So I'm not going to answer your question. I'll answer it in like a different way. Um, I, I think that the more that I think about it, you know, the problems with our politics today, I mean, I think there's certainly institutional things um, that we need to think about and we need to work on. Um, but I, I think that the bigger issue, or at least I'm reminded of the, the one, the last thing that he wrote for public consumption, um, he wrote in like 1834 when he was he was crippled by rheumatoid arthritis. He was in his eighties. He was very old. He was like all of his friends had died by that point. He wrote this thing in the response to the nullification crisis. Of course, South Carolina threatened to nullify the, to the, the tariff of 1828. And it was the first genuine threat to the union. And, and he warned the, the advice to my country was to treat um, disunion in the way that you would treat the serpent in the garden. Mm-hmm. Um, which is was interesting biblical literary idea because he wasn't particularly religious, but that's mm-hmm. how that's that's what he phrased. And and so I think there's there's I, not that we have like a sentiment of disunion in this country the same way we did in like say the 1850s, but I think that there 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 is too much of our politics is driven I think by the fact that certain groups of people hate other groups of people in this country and vice versa. There's too much, too much of our political beliefs are anchored in the idea that um, other people are evil. Mm-hmm. Um, and that I think, I, and that I think is, is an underlying cause of the civil war. I don't, I don't think you can underestimate like when did the civil war happen? I think it was a lot of it was due to the animal spirits. Like they wanted to fight. You know, they they, you know, like with the first at first bull run, they wanted to they wanted to kill each other. Right. Um, and, and, I, and I think that, you know, we're not going to solve problems in our country if we have this spirit of disunionism or at least um, if we consistently um, obsess over the things that make us different rather than try to find the points of common ground that we possess. Um, and, I, and I think that Madison's 
uh, as a Madisonian, I would say like, yes, there's a lot of things that we can fix with our political institutions, but at the same time, our institutions are still fundamentally Republican, which means that we get the government that we deserve. And if the government we deserve sucks and it's terrible, maybe we should take a long, hard look in the mirror collectively at ourselves and see what we are failing to do. And, and I think if we did that, we'd see, oh, wow, you know, these are fellow Americans of mine and I hate them, you know, like why, why, why should you hate the people who live on the Upper West Side of New York City? Well, you know, I mean, why? There are Americans, too. Well, one exception I'll make because I, I, you know, look, we're all different, but we're all fellow countrymen, countrywomen, except for Vikings fans. Uh, <laughs> you know, yes, I think we can all agree to that. Yes. Yeah. OK, good. I just OK. <laughs> see, we're in agreement. You you take. I, I love that. Though. I love that, though, that you you can be you can now be in the NFC West. Right. In Arizona. Oh, yeah. But you're still fundamentally an NFC North guy. Right. 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 Fundamentally. Well, my dad, yeah. My dad, I think, genetically engineered me to be a Packers fan. And I just. Right. Look, I'll root for the Cardinals, but there's no passion there. There's no emotion. Right. So, um, <laughs> all right, Jay Cost, it was great to have you on. Everybody go out and buy. If memory serves, there's a holiday coming up soon. And you know what everybody on your shopping list needs? They need a copy of James Madison, America's First Politician by Jay Cost. Thanks so much for being on. Thanks for having me, John. This was a lot of fun. Great to have Jay on. Um, I can't even remember if I said this in the interview. Remember, I'm loopy. I'm still, I still have a cold. I still have a man cold, which is the worst thing ever. Um, but yeah, we've like followed each other for years on Twitter. It's like, I need to have Jay on, especially since we interviewed uh, Troy Senek a few weeks back about his book about Grover Cleveland. Well, I always want to call just Grover Norquist just to annoy Troy. Um, but that's very, that's very juvenile. I know. I know. Um, other things in the news. I just wanted to, uh, do around the bases here. What's going on in the news, especially since I missed two weeks. We had, if I did a show last week, everybody was talking about Kanye and Milo and what's that guy's name? Sanchez? Something Sanchez. Not the guy from, uh, who was on CNN. Not Rick Sanchez. I don't know. Something. He's, uh, they're all a bunch of, uh, Hitler lovers, basically. And, uh, they had a lovely Thanksgiving meal with our former president, Donald J. Trump. Um, and it was just a clown show. It was a mess. And then Kanye went on Timcast and stormed off. And then he was tweeting about Hitler being groovy. And then he was on some bizarre panel. Oh my gosh. The, this cast of characters. Total Star Wars cantina scene there. And, uh, Alex Jones is like trying to, whoa, 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 Kanye, you're, you're getting a little odd and conspiratorial. So yeah, I mean, that kind of shows how that went. Um, I, I don't really know much about Kanye other than I've never cared for him. Uh, but that's more of a music thing. I don't, I'm just not into it. And I, people used to uh, lecture me. Uh, well, you don't get it, white man, and you don't get uh, his genius. What a brilliant artist he is. He says, well, he seems like kind of a jerk, and his music does absolutely nothing for me. But everybody kept, kept insisting that he was the singular genius who nobody can quite grok or understand. And now everybody hates him. So who's the Nazi now? Pitchfork reviewer from, I don't know. 2007. But yeah, they, he's running for president. Milo was his campaign. And I was like, what is going on? What is going on with our politics? Trump since then, he was kind of complaining about it. It was a big black eye for him. And then a couple of days ago, he said that uh, he wanted to terminate the Constitution and be installed as the rightful president from the election he lost two years ago. And then when people criticized him for it, the fake news is actually trying to convince the American people that I said I wanted to terminate the Constitution, even though what he said is he wanted the termination of all rules, even those found in the Constitution. That was his direct quote. Um, but yeah, it's all disinformation and lies and everybody's mean to Donald Trump. It's hard to get outraged about this stuff. I know the usual suspects on Twitter are still getting outraged every time Trump burps or something. It just I might have mentioned this on the last show. It just feels like yesterday's news. It's like someone telling me the latest slam that Sarah Palin did on on the liberals. Oh, man, she went on stage and she was sipping on a super big gulp and she made jokes about hockey moms. It just 
just feels like from another world. We, we've moved on. I think we've moved on as a group of people. I'm not seeing a lot of support from pretty hardcore Trump people as well. And as everybody knows, I had my problems with the guy, but uh, I'd rather have him in charge than uh, Mr. Biden. At least the economy was good. Um, but now it's like running again. Ugh. It's just everybody's just like, we're tired enough already. We don't need this and we don't need a 78-year-old running against an 82-year-old. It's just, can we have something a little bit fresh? Uh, it's a new world out there, and we have new problems, and we need someone lively and aggressive to focus on those problems and not what happened two years ago. Uh, my little commentary there. Uh, but there was far more important news that broke today. I'm recording this on Tuesday. Washington Post is on it. Apparently, a Shark Week is coming up on the Discovery Channel. Big ratings bonanza for them. Every year, people tune in for Shark Week. I don't think I've ever seen any of it, but I don't know. I know that it's very popular. Well, Washington Post, they are not having it, and they have canceled Shark Week. Here was their tweet today. Researchers say Discovery's programming overwhelmingly featured white men as experts. Oof, not good. While emphasizing negative messages about sharks. There are just too many negative messages about man-eating beasts that swim through the waters and chop your legs off. You, the, the top half of your body is bobbing around. It doesn't even know it's dead yet. Your brain is still processing images and uh, sharks swimming away with your everything below your belt buckle. Um, good job, Washington Post. That's very important to expose uh, great white privilege. So um, nobody is allowed to watch Shark Week. Um, if it's still being run, I assume, I assume that's the only reason they would run uh, this uh, right now. Good for you, Washington Post. Enjoy the Pulitzer. The Washington Post also did um, something about the lockdowns and the effect of the lockdowns. And as you know, anybody who criticized lockdowns and kind of the poor handling of COVID and school closures and the like, like myself, Bethany Mandel got a lot of heat and called a grandma killer because she's like, no, it's actually good that kids are out and about and doing things because there's very bad uh, situations that will develop if they're locked up for two years. But no, the experts knew best. Well, here is a quote from the Washington Post article today. The CDC found 45% of high school students were so persistently sad or hopeless in 2021 that they were unable to engage in regular activities. Almost one in five seriously considered suicide and 9% surveyed tried to take their lives during the previous 12 months. These are, this is the cost of these lockdowns of destroying kids' social life to protect, I don't know, well-heeled upper middle class boomers who are scared of a virus. And kids were not at risk for this. Um, there was almost no mortality uh, related to kids with this thing. Nobody cared. Nobody cared. And you were attacked and mocked and ridiculed if you dared to question this. Yeah, I, I'm sorry. My daughters were both in high school when that whole thing started. Dealing with them over the past couple of years and hearing about their friends and hearing from their teachers, it's very serious. There's already a mental health crisis going on, especially with young girls in this country. And the lockdown made it drastically worse, just like we said it would. And they didn't care. And now they're going mea culpa. Oh, maybe you should give us more money, maybe more money to the schools so we can kind of help reach out to these kids. No, you guys are monsters and uh, should have thought of that a couple of years ago. It's just sickening. Oh, and for two days, I've been attacked, um, not over lockdowns, not over Trump. I've written a few things about Carrie Lake, just trying to take this middle path. And so both sides are screaming at me about that. Um, but I've taken a lot of heat because the defense ministry for Ukraine posted a video, I think it was on Monday, maybe Sunday, of a soldier doing a morning Pikachu TikTok dance. That was ridiculous. And I know I'm not uh, quite the target generation for a TikTok dance video, but it was embarrassing and it was stupid. And it wasn't like you had some soldier blowing off steam and posting it herself. I think it was a she um, totally maxed out in a kit, but I think it was a female soldier. But for the official Ministry of Defense to tweet that is just disturbing. It's kind of like when there's these weird woke posts from the CIA and stuff. It's like, guys, these are your official account. Obviously, I don't care if a soldier is blown off steam among friends. But this is just a very strange thing when you're getting millions and hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars from the United States and other countries. Um, just something that's trivial and dumb. It's like, guys, you're at war. 
put your game faces on. But yeah, that means that I support Putin, according to many people on Twitter. Hi, everybody on Twitter. I hope you're having a Merry Christmas. Not seeing a lot of Christmas spirit there. And I wanted to also cover a couple things in the news. One, well, since we were talking about Russia, I'll do this one first. Um, this seems truly brilliant on behalf of Russia. They've uh, placed some missiles on the Kuril Islands. Now, the Kuril Islands uh, give you an idea of where they are if you're not familiar with them. Japan has like the main island and then a northern island, which is Hokkaido. Well, if you draw a line from Hokkaido, that northern border of Japan, and go up to the Kamchatka Peninsula, part of Russia, there's a string of islands, very much like the Aleutian Islands. Not much there, pretty rocky, pretty dinky, not much going on. But it's uh, a group of islands that Russia and Japan have been fighting over since both countries were even in the area. And Japan has a couple close to them. And Russia, I'm pretty sure, has all the rest. And so, yeah, now they're adding a bunch of coastal defense missiles on uh, the Kuril Islands, which is just brilliant. They're basically provoking Japan at this point. Do you really need this? Give me a break. At, at the start of this uh, Ukraine invasion, I said, Japan, seize the Kurils. You know, Russia's preoccupied. They don't know what's going on. They can't handle Ukraine. They're not going to attack you. And then to Finland on the other side of the country, I said, seize Karelia. That is a territory, most of which they lost during the Winter War, the onset of World War II. It's basically a part of – it was a part of Finland, and it's kind of this vague border, snowy region, uh, basically just a bunch of Sami and native Karelians lived up there. Very small, very underpopulated, but very beautiful piece of land, uh, very lovely lakes and cabins and the like. But I thought uh, Finland should just go ahead and take that too. They don't know what's going on. They don't even notice it for a while. Maybe Japan should have actually taken my advice since uh, Russia apparently doesn't have enough problems. They want to create conflict with Japan, which has an official neutrality position. Yeah, I don't think they're going to be holding on to that too long. I know I read over the weekend Japan has increased their defense spending. I'm doing this by memory, but something like 45% of their GDP, they're kicking to defense. Yeah, they know things are heating up and uh, they want to be prepared with Russia. Yes, but also China. China is not doing well. Um, I've talked many times about Peter Zihan's book on here. The end of the world is just the beginning. He basically said, look, China throughout Chinese history, thousands and thousands of years of Chinese history, um, no governmental system has lasted past 70 to 80 years, they all go down. And that's where we're at with the current regime. And there's protests all over China. And now there's some indication that China is trying to back off in a panic of the zero COVID policy. I don't know what's going on exactly. People don't know exactly what's going on in that country, but things are going to heat up. And one of the reasons is this artificial growth they've been supporting. They've been doing a lot of that with manufacturing, shipping it off to the United States, the largest market on earth. CNBC just reported today that manufacturing orders in China are down 40%. Factories are supposed to shut down two weeks earlier than usual. They usually shut down for the Chinese Lunar New Year. Well, they're going to have to shut them down a couple weeks early because nobody's ordering nothing. I think um, most people in the West have just kind of had enough with China. Just like enough already. We can't trust you because you keep locking down your cities anyway. Uh, they're pulling their businesses out of there. People are rejiggering their supply chains. And then the report said that out of the United States, demands for foreign produced goods, particularly those out of China, are dropping so much that it's impacting the entire shipping industry. It's impacting jobs in China. It's having a massive impact all over. All these major shipping firms are freaking out because they're having to send um, empty ships back and forth between China and the U.S. to set them up in new locations because people just ain't ordering stuff from China anymore. And I really think a big part of it is just people are tired of it enough already. And China has been um, really belligerent lately and why they thought they could keep behaving like this and everybody would be cool with it. I don't know, but um, it's not going well with their own people. It's not going on, not going well with the rest of the world either. So those are the big stories, at least big to me, that I noticed in the news. Uh, wrapping up here a bit, my daughter had a brilliant idea. I have two daughters, of course. The youngest, um, she sent me a text. She's in college in another state. She said, you should make a blog or podcast or something and call it Jontent instead of content. And I went, 
She's a marketing genius. So what I decided to do, since I'm kind of writing all over the place, I write at Ricochet mostly. Then I write for the local paper, and late I just posted an article on CNN for theirs, and I wrote it for The Spectator a week or two ago. So, and then I'm doing like media and this and that. So I was like, I'm just going to slap all the links there at the end of uh, the show notes for each podcast full of good John Tent. You people need your John Tent. Um, and one thing that I'll also include in there is I'm going to be guest hosting the Three Martini Lunch podcast. Jim Garrity is going to be out, I think, Wednesday and Thursday of next week, December 14 and 15. So I will be guest hosting there, but it'll just kind of be a good way when I have a media appearance or whatever to let you guys know. Now, of course, we have the song of the week. I went through a bunch of uh, new releases. <sighs> okay, here's the deal. I went through my Spotify. They have like this year-end wrap-up, what you listen to. And boy, mine was really hipstery. It was like almost embarrassing. It was, you know, all this avant-garde, intelligent dance music, obscure stuff that nobody listens to. And I sit there and stroke my chin and sip from my latte and think deep thoughts. I'm like, okay, I just need to listen to a little more normal music. So I picked some normal music because I stumbled across this song and I was like, oh my gosh, I love those dudes. Um, so that's the only reason I chose it. Faith No More Midlife Crisis. underappreciated band uh, to this day, uh, very influential as well. And uh, Mike Patton is a vocal genius and he's been doing, man, he's always doing weird stuff. Talking about avant-garde. He just will do release these albums with these strange noise artists from Japan and then some kind of a avant-garde composer from Switzerland and doesn't care about money. He never really liked fame um, when he was the lead singer for Faith No More. Um, but he just loves producing stuff and talking, meeting to interesting people and trying new stuff. And it's kind of cool. He actually released an album a while back. He lives in Italy mostly because I think his wife is from there, from Bologna. And he started hearing all these old kind of sixties pop songs that were wildly popular in Italy. He went, Oh, these are cool. And he got kind of into them. So he released an album backed by a full orchestra singing all these very interesting songs. They're really good songs too, but. Kind of weird, kind of cheesy, uh, kind of an Ennio Morricone vibe with strange instrumentation and stuff. But uh, he's just a pretty fascinating cat. So I added that on there. Thanks so much for listening. Please remember to subscribe if you haven't. Review this podcast if you haven't. Or if you have, just delete it and then make a new one. I will be back next week. You have a wonderful one. And I'll talk to you then. Ricochet. Join the conversation.